Well, when you uh, think about small towns, I don't know about you, but I think about people that are famous. I grew up in the uh, 80s and 90s. And in 1994, there was a movie that came out. It was called The Little Giants. Uh, there was a guy named uh, uh, Ed O'Neill. Ed O'Neill, he's, uh, he, well, he, he's famous for lots of different roles. One of the roles he plays uh, was this guy named Kevin O'Shea. Kevin O'Shea was his Heisman Trophy winner, and his name was plastered on the water tower in town. And when you think about small towns, you think about people that are from small towns and what makes small towns famous. In sense. For instance, if you're driving down uh, the I-20 and you're outside of Lindale, Texas, you'll see a big sign that says uh, hometown of Miranda Lambert. You get that all the time, things like that. But well, here's the deal. I know that you don't realize this, but uh, in Edgewood, Texas, uh, there's a guy that is from Edgewood that right now is the head coach of the Arkansas Razorbacks. His name's Chad Morris. Uh, and you're like, well, well, who in the world is famous in, in Will's Point? Well, there's this guy that had Will's cabin uh, back in the day. No, actually, listen, I was reading an article just a few weeks ago, and uh, I was... Uh, reading through it. It's actually been a few months ago, but I checked it again three weeks ago. And there was a guy that um, actually uh, was from this area, born in Wills Point in 1903. And he is the founder of the best pizza place in America, which is Uno's Pizza in Chicago. The best deep dish pizza in all of America was a guy from here. His name was Ike Sewell, and uh, he actually later on grew up, went to play football for the University of Texas, and then a long time landed up in Chicago, and he became the entrepreneur and owner of Uno's Pizza Place. Uh, if you haven't had it, you can go to Fort Worth, Texas and get it. I encourage you to do that while we're in the small town series for a date night or something like that, because why not? I always need a good reason to go eat Uno's Pizza. Now, you may be here like, okay, well, what's the point of this? Well, here's the deal. You think about small towns, you think, man, so every now and then from a small town, you're going to get a, a person with big dreams and big aspirations, and they're going to go off, and they're going to be somebody. And small towns are special, and, and uh, you... You love small towns. The challenge, though, is, is that oftentimes, if you're not from a small town uh, and you move in from an urban center or a, an urban fringe area, you're like, we're trying to move out because all the growth is coming and we're just trying to have our own place and we don't really you know, want to be with too many people. One of the things that I hear over and over and over again is this, is that our small town experience hasn't been all that pleasant. And I go, what do you mean by that? And I'll dig in, press in a little bit, and they'll say, well, it's just really hard to get connected. It's really hard to have close friends. It's been really hard because there seems like in small towns, there's cliques and there's, there's different friendships and people have been there forever. And it's just really hard to get to know anyone. People aren't friendly. And you hear that a lot. Uh, what's crazy is, is that I don't just hear that about small towns like uh, here in Wills Point or in Edgewood or other surrounding areas. There's another area that I hear that a lot, and that is in the local church. It is not uncommon for me to hear, well, we tried out this church and they just weren't friendly. They didn't talk to me at all. I didn't have anything to say to my family. Uh, we went in and it was like we were outsiders and there was nothing for us. And you hear that time and time again. Now think about this. Small towns known for famous people, I've never actually seen on the outside of a town when you're going in, I've never seen a sign that says, welcome to our small town. We are the friendliest people on earth. 
I mean, there's, there's something there like, hey, here, welcome to our small town. We have salt. Fantastic. <laughs> welcome to our small town. We're the bluebird capital of Texas. Awesome. But when you think about small towns, I mean, you're never talking about, hey, come here because we are going to welcome you as an outsider. You don't get that. And oftentimes, I think the argument can be true is that it's really hard to build relationships. It's really hard to find friends. It's really hard if you're an outsider to become a part of something that people have been a part of for a really long time. Now, when you think about a small town, you go, is that really that big of a deal? I mean, we don't want everybody in Mayberry because if everybody was in Mayberry, then it wouldn't be Mayberry. But the question is, is, if you have that thought process in small town, then don't you think that's going to be pressing into small town churches? And the question is, and I think the thing that we're going to wrestle through a little bit today is, is it okay in any church that promotes the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to not treat outsiders well? I'm like, is it okay that in small town, rural Texas, that in some ways you would say, well, this is just kind of our church and we just kind of like the people that are here. And because we kind of like the people that are here, we really don't want to add too many people, but don't get me wrong, we'll add a couple of people as long as, and then there's a handful of prerequisite conditions, right? And that's the attitude that a lot of our churches have. Matter of fact, listen, every church in America would say this, we want to grow, and then the question I would ask is, do you really want to grow? Because even though their t-shirt says they want to grow, the way they treat outsiders says they don't want to grow. And I think this is a challenge in small town, rural America. One of the reasons that small towns have a difficult time and they don't always have a name for being friendly. Same reason for churches not having a name for being friendly is because we don't understand how to view outsiders. And we don't understand if outsiders really matter and why they should. And today I just wanna make three simple arguments for why outsiders really do matter and why we should be leaning into that and why I think biblically it's really important. So if you're here today as a first-time guest at Stone Point Church, we are grateful that you're here. We believe that this is a place that is a safe place where you don't have to be perfect, that you actually don't have to have your life together, that you can be a mess, and that God can still bring a message out of that mess, that God can do something extraordinary, even if you go, I just feel average and ordinary. Praise God, because that's where God does his best work, and we believe that you're welcome here. Matter of fact, get this. Um, eight years ago, uh, this April, we started this thing called Stone Point Church. And the reason we started it, and one of our core values is this, is that we wanted new people. New people. It's still in. We've had over 40 starting point classes in those last eight years. And in every single one of them, we spent some time on the core values. And this is what my message is every single time. We love it when people enter our doors and their life is a mess. I actually even get more excited when you look at someone and they've got tattoos and they've got um, piercings that you're like, I didn't even know you could pierce that. Praise God. I'm like, that's awesome. And then you go, well, why? And here's why. Because listen, 
I want you to realize that's why we began this place. The reason we started Stone Point is because we realized that not every small town says we want outsiders. We know that not every church says we want outsiders. But what we believe is, is that new people is a reflection of the God we serve. And I'm gonna give you a framework for that today, that regardless of what your attitude is about your neighbors, about the people that live across the street or that are in your HOA or that go to church with you or that you see in the grocery store, I pray that God would illuminate and give us kind of a new eyes and a new perspective as it relates today. So I'm gonna give you three quick things and quite a few scriptures to go with it so that when you walk out of here, you might be a little bit frustrated with me, might not agree completely, that's okay, but you will have to wrestle a little bit with some scripture. So let me pray for us, then we're going to dive in and we're going to talk through a few of these things. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your provision on our lives, and we pray, God, that you would help us to wrestle through this tension of what it looks like to live in a small town, to live in a place that Um, may not always be known to be friendly or welcoming, that may not always treat outsiders well. I pray that you would help us work through that. And I pray that most of all, you would help us to have a, a gospel orientation as it relates to those who are not like us. We need your help. We ask for eyes to see and ears to hear and a a spirit uh, to understand. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. So the word that we're going to use over and over and over again is this word called outsiders. Um, When you think about outsiders, I'm sure there's lots of different things that come to mind. Um, But the Greek word is the word exothen, which literally just means outsiders. It means people that aren't inside. And so the reason that's helpful is because I'm from East Texas and I'm not that intelligent. And so an outsider is simply an outsider. It's somebody that in the ins- is on the outside looking in. And what's, in the, what's really helpful as we walk through these next handful of texts, you're gonna see the theme over and over and over again, outsider, outsider, outsider. And when you walk through this, here's where you're going to go. Now, here's where your mind's gonna go and you need to be paying attention to it now so you note that. As we walk through it, you're going to see the early church talk about outsiders. Matter of fact, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn with me to Colossians chapter 4. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, we'd love to bless you with one so that you have one. Uh, As you go to Colossians 4, if you're new to church and you're like, I'm not, I don't even understand what you're talking about. I don't even know what Colossians is. Well, here's the awesome thing. Your Bible's broken up into two parts. One's the Old Testament. That's 39 books. And that tells about a nation uh, called the the Jewish nation. Uh, They're the Hebrew people. Uh, Israel is the other name for them. Uh, Outside of that nation, uh, there's going to become a man, or inside that nation, there's going to be a man. He's going to become the savior of the world. Messiah, his name's Jesus. And the New Testament is based around Jesus, the good news that he offers, the the savior that he is, how he comes to Luke chapter 19, verse 10, seek and save that which is lost. And then it's going to tell you about the early church. When the early church is getting started, you see this word outsiders. And Paul's going to write about outsiders. He's going to write it to a couple of different churches. He's going to write how uh, to his friend Timothy about how you should treat outsiders and what that looks like. And when you think about outsiders, naturally your thought is going to go, well, yes, we should treat people who are outside of the church really well. And what you're going to think is, is, oh, absolutely. When somebody comes to church, we should greet them. And we should, we should make sure to say hello to them. And we should make sure that we 
Treat them well and with respect. But here's the deal. Lean in with me real quickly. If the church, as we've learned in the past eight years, is not a building, but it's a people, the question and the thing that you have to wrestle with is this. Are we only to treat outsiders well when we're at a building? Or are we supposed to move that in all areas of our life? Meaning that if we are the church wherever we are, that at the end of the day, we have to think about outsiders that relates to everything in small town rural life. And I think that's the answer. But when we're reading scripture, you're gonna go, oh, okay, we need to think about outsiders. And when you think about outsiders, you need to think about those who are looking on into the church and maybe they're checking out the church and maybe they're thinking about your, your services or maybe they're looking online and they're like, man, do I like that church? And you think, oh, outsiders, people that are gonna come and visit our church. And I want you to see a bigger context a bigger context that there are people who are watching you and me as the church in all areas and all facets of our life as it pertains to how we live. And that's what matters. Colossians chapter four, Paul writes to the church of Colossae and at the very end of the book of Colossians in chapter four, he's gonna give some final greetings. And just before he gives his final greetings, he's gonna kind of wrap up and sum up the book on what it looks like to live a holy life before outsiders. This is what he says in verses five and six. He says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. The idea of this, he goes, listen, your time is limited. Now that's not just on earth, but just in general, our time is very limited. Our life is but a, a hand breath, uh, Psalm 39. Our life is a vapor, it comes and it goes. Meaning you and I have a limited time to make a difference. And so we ought to conduct ourselves and we ought to make the best use of our time. Now I would tell you that when it relates to outsiders, you even have a, a smaller gap and a little less window. Matter of fact, most people statistically would say are gonna make a first impression based off of you in the first seven seconds. So in seven seconds, though you may not say a word, they have already watched how you respond. And I don't know if you're like me, but oftentimes before I ever say anything, my face says everything. And so regardless of what I'm thinking or what I say, my facial expressions usually will say it all. And sometimes that's a good thing. And sometimes that's not a good thing. At the end of the day, what I want you to realize is that you may not say anything and you may give an impression to an outsider about what's going on. Why? Because the time is limited. Here's what's interesting. Statistics would tell us about that seven seconds. In order for you to change their mind on the first seven seconds of their interaction with you, it will take seven more meetings with you face-to-face -face for them to change their mind about what they thought of you in the first seven seconds. And you may not have said a word. So what I'm saying is, is that when we think about outsiders and when we think about people who are meeting us for the very first time, it's really important that we're on our A game. It's really important that we have this idea of what God wants. Why? We should be walking in wisdom. Walking in wisdom, what does that look like? Well, wisdom is knowing what's going on around you. We say it this way to our kids. Listen, when you're talking kids, you ought to be thinking about wisdom intact. We get that from the book of Daniel. Daniel is uh, gonna be interacting with this guy, a Babylonian, king called Nebuchadnezzar and he prays and he says, Lord, would you give me wisdom and tact as I approach the king? And here's what wisdom is. Wisdom is knowing what to say and tact is knowing how to say it. 
Listen, that's one area right there we can grow. So he goes, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. That means know what's going on around you. When you are gonna say something, know what to say and how to say it. Matter of fact, look at verse six. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. At the end of the day, what we say with our mouths is really important about how it relates to outsiders. Okay, look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. I'm gonna stick it up for you on the screen. You can also flip to your right and find 1 Thessalonians. And it says this, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Okay, fantastic. We should love one another. Verse 10, for that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you brothers to do this more and more, meaning you can never love someone too much. So as we continue to love others, he says, what else did you do? He goes, you should aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, I don't know about you, but did you just catch that there? Now, if you are a small town mind, meaning that you go, look, that's why I moved out here. I moved out here so I could mind my own business and I moved out here so that no one would bother me. And that's all I want. I just want to live on a couple of acres. I don't want neighbors that are too close. I don't want to have people dropping off cookies at my house. All I want is just to live a life in which on the weekends, I get to mow my yard. I get to hang out in the backyard around a fire pit and people will just leave me alone. And if you, if you go, that's what I want, you could easily interpret that that's what Paul is saying to the church in Thessalonica. Although I have no evidence that they had fire pits or that where they were mowing their yards. What I am saying is I think that's not good contextually. Here's, here, here's what I want you to realize. What Paul is saying is that, look, we ought, to, we ought to walk with wisdom as it relates to outsiders. That's what he's saying to the church of Colossae. Then he's saying to the church in Thessalonica, he's going, look, here's how you ought to live. And he's given them a framework of what it looks like to live. And when he's saying that you should aspire to live quietly, what he's saying is, he goes, you ought to, you ought to put your hands to plow and you ought to, you ought to plow forward. And he goes, and you shouldn't continue to look back. And he goes, you ought to be careful in how you use your tongue. You ought to mind your own affair. Meaning that when you deal with outsiders, one of the things that they that's not helpful is a gossiper or a slanderer. We talked about that last week. And so as you start thinking about that, when it says to mind your own affairs, to live quietly, the idea is that you would be honorable among outsiders. They ought to be able to see the way you live your lives and give glory to God on the account of the way you treat them and live around them. I mean, think about this for just a second. If you are here in a small town, you've been here forever and you're always gossiping and you're always talking about who's new and can you believe what they've done, then that would classify you as someone who's not living quietly and ultimately is not putting the hand of the plow in your own life, but you've got many different interests and they're divided and it would also make you a gossip. Now here's the deal. Oftentimes we give ear to that in a small town and let me just kind of give you a real brief snippet to remind you of last week's message. If people are gossiping to you and you give ear to it, the question I think you have to ask yourself is, how long do you think it'll be that before they're gossiping about you? I mean, honestly, just think about that. If they're willing to gossip to you, how long will it be before they're gossiping about you? And what Paul is saying is this. He goes, listen, when it, when it relates to outsiders, he goes, the way that we talk around them, 
the way that we live around them, conduct ourselves, minding our own affairs, working an honest day's job, doing things that are noble and pure and trustworthy and true. Philippians 4, 8, he goes, that all says something about you and me. That's what he's talking about. You can't claim to live honorable lives and not be careful about those who are looking on and watching you. In 1 Timothy, Paul's gonna write to his buddy Timothy and listen, he's gonna give an outline for those that are called overseers. That word overseer can be shepherd, pastor, bishop. It can be anything that you wanna call it in terms as it relates to leadership in the church. And so leadership in the church are people that Paul says ought to be men of respect. Let's read it. There's seven verses here. A lot of things that uh, the reason it fits in is is why I'm going to tell you that in a minute, but look at it. It says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Meaning if anybody wants to be a pastor or a, a person in the church that's leading and serving the body, he goes, that's a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. He should be the husband of one wife. He should be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not a violent man, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Meaning the idea is this, this leader by all standards should not be perfect, but they should have some, some qualities in their life in which you see character, right? And you should see how they live their lives, how they honor their wife, how they care for their kids. They ultimately shouldn't have kids that are in a sense looking pagan and then them trying to be leading everybody towards godliness. He goes, at the end of the day, that's really important. But look what he says in verse six. He goes, he shouldn't be a recent convert. So he's not becoming puffed up or conceited, falling into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, look at this, underline this. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. Listen, one one of the things that you should be paying attention to about any leader in the local church is not how well they teach, it's not how, how great their sermons are. It's not all of the things that we make it. We hire guys in churches in America all the time because their church grew and because they preach a good message. The question that I would lean into most is what do people who don't go to your church or who don't, in a sense, think that you are the best thing since sliced bread, what do they say about you? Because at the end of the day, I'll tell you, it's one thing for the people inside of your circle to love you, but what does it say when people who are not inside your circle have nothing malicious to say about you? That's character. That's what you're looking for in pastors and leaders. And listen, lean in, the people of God. The people of God. Why? Because we are all ministers. We are all called the people of God. We're ministers. We are those who are ambassadors for Christ and we are to reconcile those who are far off from God to God. Let me ask you a question. How do you reconcile someone that's far from God to God if they don't like you? Or that you're a jerk or that you're always quick to anger or that if they catch you somewhere outside of the church, you're mean and you're gruff and you're always angry. And listen, does that happen sometimes? Yes, it's, it's really easy to come one hour of the week and press each other. 
It's a whole nother thing to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel in all facets and all areas of our life. The way we run our business, people are watching. The way we teach school, people are watching. The, the way that we shop in the grocery store, people are watching. Everything we do, God cares about. Why? Because everything we do says a whole lot about you. Matter of fact, here's my first thing. Write it down. The way you treat outsiders reveals a lot about your character. That's what those three verses were. What he says, he, he tells the church in Colossae, hey, hey, have wisdom as it relates to outsiders. Make the most of your time. Let your conversation be seasoned with salt. Don't be a gossiper. Hey, he says to the church of Thessalonica, hey, put your hand to the plow. Hey, press forward. Hey, maintain um, your life. Aspire to live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Walk properly as it relates to outsiders. Why? Because they're watching. They care. Leaders in the church, you ought to be paying attention, not just to not drinking much wine, not just to not beating your wife. He goes, no, you ought to what? You ought to have a noble life, character in all areas. People, even outsiders, ought to know that you know you're a godly person. That's the idea. Why? Because it says a whole lot about your character. But here's the deal. It doesn't just say a lot about your character. Listen to this. It says a whole lot about what you think about God. It says a whole lot about what you think about God. Jesus' half-brother, James, he writes um, a section in Scripture in James chapter 2 where he's talking about not showing partiality. Uh, and listen, where, where he's going to zone in a little bit and where oftentimes partiality happens is when you think someone ultimately can benefit you by you knowing them. That's what you would call duplicity. Um, oftentimes, you see that within the local church. Uh, in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, he outlines it. Let me just read it to you and then kind of give you a little bit of context. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. The idea, he goes, hey, um, you should treat everyone with respect. And then he's going to give you an instance. He says in verse two, for if a man's wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, say, hey, you should sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, hey, stand over there, sit down over here at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? What he's saying is, is this, he goes, at the end of the day, he goes, we, we can all make judgments. And at the end of the day, oftentimes when we make judgments, we can make judgments that aren't fair. And oftentimes our judgments are skewed, particularly if we're judging simply off of the way that someone looks. He goes, it's one thing for a guy who is working here in a local business in the community in which you know is, is, a, is a, a good businessman. Uh, he makes good money. He's got fair wages, and you also think when he walks in, wow, it's great to have him. I think he would be a blessing to our body. And you treat him in a way that you wouldn't necessarily treat someone else that 10 minutes later walks in. And when you look at them, they're they, they clearly have a past. You can tell that right now their living conditions are different. The way they look is not, not even close to the guy that looks that just walked in 10 minutes earlier. And you can easily say, you know what? Hey, let me, let me bring you over here. I think you might could give to our general fund. You might be a blessing to our finances. And then you look over there and you go, oh, I don't know, man. Uh, I don't know if we can help you, but uh, you, you can come to our regeneration program tomorrow night. 
And just based off of the way they look, you think, oh, this guy's got it together and this guy doesn't. And so you treat this guy over here with one way of respect and this person over here with a different, just based off the way they look. And you go, I I don't think that really ever happens. And I would say, I think it happens way more than you would like to think. And then he says this, look at verse five. Listen, my brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are are not the rich ones the ones who oppress you? Aren't they the one who drag you into the court? Aren't they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? He goes, isn't it easy how oftentimes we'll treat people around us based on what we think they'll do for us? But he goes, those people that oftentimes you, you befriend for duplicity reasons, he goes, they're the ones who ultimately end up biting you. And he goes, and then don't you remember what God usually does? God usually can take somebody that's poor and even what they look like on the outside and they can do something amazing with on the inside. Matter of fact, that was week one's message. God always uses the ordinary to do extraordinary. That's the point of, uh, of really the idea of 1 Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord doesn't see uh, what's on the outside of, of a man's appearance, but what's on the inside. The challenge, we can't see that. And so we'll get to doing partiality. So he goes on and this is what he says. He goes, look, if you really want to fulfill the scripture, okay, according to the law, he goes, you shall love your neighbor as yourself as you're doing well. Um, and you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing a sin and are convicted by the law of transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who has said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act to those that are being judged under the law of liberty. So here's what he's doing. Listen, he goes, okay, so you think, oh, if a guy comes in and he looks okay and you treat him well and another person comes in and you don't treat them as well, he goes, you're going to show partiality. And when you're having a conversation with a Pharisee, he'd go, well, but I, I was just loving this rich man as my neighbor. I was loving him well. All, that's all I was doing because that's what the law says. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus goes, okay, wait, wait, wait a second. Okay, let's talk about the law. He goes, it can be summed up in two ways. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. And the second's like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes, now listen, he, he goes, I want you to hear something. He goes, the way that you treat a person will put you in the same category as a guy who has murdered. He goes, you may say to yourself, well, I haven't murdered. I'm not that bad of a guy. Or you may say to yourself, oh, I'm not really that, that bad of a person. I've never had an affair with my wife. But he said, then you get to as it relates to outsiders. And he says, and if you relate to an outsider in a way that doesn't promote dignity and really the character of God, then he goes, you have sinned equally as your brother who's murdered or committed adultery. And that, my friends, is the American church. And it is small town Texas. What do I mean by that? The same guy who's a deacon in a local church who's having coffee, he's never had an affair on his wife and he's never murdered anybody. But when somebody wants to pull up a chair and have a cup of coffee with him and his three buddies, he is agitated. When somebody parks in his parking spot because it's reserved for a deacon, he's ticked off. And when somebody comes into the front doors of their building and they're tatted up and they're pierced and they don't look the part that guess what? He goes, oh, there's not room for those kinds around these parts. The point is, is that the way that you and I see other people says a whole lot, not just about your character, but about God. And I think that's where we've missed it when it comes to rural communities. 
You cannot in one hand say, I love God and then despise your neighbor. For instance, you can't really in a small town because you want to protect Mayberry say, you know what? I, I really just want my few pieces of land and acres. I want people to leave me alone. Okay, but what does that say about God? I mean, you cannot, you cannot get in an HOA and then say, and if you're not a part of the HOA, I don't want you swimming in my pool. You can't do that and love Jesus because what you think about that says a whole lot. You're like, well, yes, I can, pastor. I get that you can. What I'm saying is it is not a blessing to the kingdom of God because when you think that the outsider doesn't deserve the same intention as you do as an insider, then you are missing it. And here's why, you ready? This is the point that's gonna drive it home. At one point in time, all of us were outsiders. No, I know, pastor, I've been here all my life. I've lived in small town Texas all my life. Okay, but your parents didn't. Oh yeah, they did. Okay, your grandparents didn't. Uh-huh. Well, okay, I know they didn't settle back when Will's Cabin was here in Will's Point. They weren't here then. Yeah, you're right. They moved in in the late 19, you know, 1800s. Okay, great. The point is, at some point, everyone in this room was an outsider. At some point, all of us moved in. At some point of us, all of us were outsiders, and that's huge. And here's why. Because you might not think you're an outsider here in the community of Wills Point or Edgewood, but I'll tell you where you were an outsider, and that is when the good news of Jesus was promoted. At one point, you were all alienated. You were all strangers in our sin problem. All of us were outside and now have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. That's Ephesians 2. Let me show it to you. Ephesians 2 talks about how it's by grace that we've been saved through faith, that God is also, Ephesians 2.10, he's made us God's workmanship. We've been created in Christ to do good works. But look what it says after that, verse 11. Therefore, because God changed our lives, because he's given us grace, because he has a plan for our lives, therefore, what should happen? He goes, remember that at one time you too were Gentiles in the flesh. He goes, one time you were barbaric. One time you were an outsider. One time you were far away from God. You were the uncircumcision is what it says by what is called the circumcision. Meaning the Jews said, oh dude, those are outsiders. Oh dude, like that's, they're nasty. They're mutts, they're half breeds. Oh, who are they? Why would God love them? I mean, look at us, look at them. We were outsiders. Look at verse 12. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and stranger to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He goes, at one point, you were a stranger. At one point, you were far from God, alienated in your sin problem. But look at verse 13. Now Christ Jesus you were once far off from, has brought you near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made us both one, has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in the ordinance that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Look at verse 19. The reason this is so that no longer are you strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens. Underline that, fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household for God. Catch this. At one point, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. We were filthy. We were nasty. We were far off. Matter of fact, you remember James 2? You got the rich man wearing the gold ring. You got the poor man coming in. You know what he was in the scriptures? He was a beggar. You know who else is a beggar? 
you and me. When it comes to God, we have nothing to offer him. And the only way we have a relationship to the God of heaven is in our beggarly state. We reduce ourselves to nothing and we say, God, you are something. And because you are holy and you are perfect and you are pure and you were willing to lay your son's life down on the cross for our punishment, we can now become no longer aliens, no longer strangers of the world, but we can now become the people of God. We were once outside of the promise and now we've been brought inside of the promise by the blood of Jesus. Can I get an amen? Now, why does that matter? Because you can't have a small town rural attitude and say, you know what? We just want this and we don't want that. At the end of the day, how does anyone who's experienced the good news of Jesus get to pick and choose who you're gonna love? I mean, do you remember the words of Jesus? He says, hey, you'll know that you're my disciples by the way that you love one another. And it amazes me how many people show up one hour of the week, raise their hands, sing a couple of songs, pat the preacher on the back, and then you're a jerk at Walmart. It's amazing how many of you get on the phone with Dish and cuss them up and down because they raise your price. Did you not know they were gonna raise your price? They do it to every customer. And they sucked you in with that six months low price so they could raise the price. Did you not know that God cares about how you treat people across the street? I get it. They don't keep their yard maintained like you do. I get it. You can't understand why they pay HOA fees like you do and they keep their yard like that. At the end of the day, do you not realize that the way that you and I deal with people in our community, in our small town, in our churches, at our grocery stores, says a whole lot about our character, about who we believe about God, and it reflects at the end of the day that we were all once outsiders, and we need to remember that. And here's the tragedy. The longer we are inside and a part of the family of God, the more hostile we become to people outside of the family of God. But can I tell you, church, that's backwards. Because the more that we draw near to Jesus, the more gracious and the most, more merciful that we should become. And listen, I'll just say this, and I want to close with it. If people don't know you to be an honorable man or woman by the way you conduct yourself, by the way that you talk, what that says a whole lot, not only about you, but about the Lord. And if you're known in outside circles of people who don't want anything to do with the church or with you or your family or anything, if they say that about you, listen, take heed, please church, pay attention to that. Why? Because it matters. And because you cannot think, oh, wow, I'm a part of the family of God. And then in every other circle, you look as if you're not a part of the family of God. That is contrary to the gospel witness. It is dangerous. It is a fallacy to the hope that we have in Christ. And at the end of the day, if our small town is known for being cliquish, self-centered, a hard place to build relationships, then you better believe that all of our churches are gonna be a reflection of our small town. And so if that's what we're known for, then we better get to work because I pray 
that we would realize that it is not a blessing when people say, your church is hard to find people and relationships. That's not a blessing to hear that. It's not a blessing when somebody goes, well, I came, but nobody talked to me. Listen, that is not the words I wanna hear. Oh, hey, I came, but it's taken me forever to build relationships. Oh man, that stirs me. It matters. And I pray that we'll know why it matters. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this morning. I pray that, Lord, you would help us um, to be honorable and ultimately to, to live lives that are a blessing to those that are outside of us. I pray that we would know that uh, we need to have wisdom, make the most of our time, that we should be well thought of by those who are looking in, uh, whether that's in our community, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, in our churches. I pray that we would know that at the end of the day, the way that we love people, accept them, says a whole lot about what we think, what we believe, and about our character. Most of all, it's a reflection of you. How do people who claim to be loved by God not accept people that were created by God? And so I pray that we would know that, and I pray that we would see that, and I pray that we wouldn't show partiality, but at the end of the day, we would realize at one time we were all outsiders, far from the grace of God. But because you are rich in mercy, you have made us fellow citizens, heirs of the promise, and a part of the family of God. And so may we have that attitude as it relates to people who don't know you and desire to know more about you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.